welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Just say that if we haven't met in person before, my name is Scott, and I help lead our team here in Inglewood. And as Maddie mentioned just a second ago, we are so glad that you're here with us today. The few, the brave. We're so glad you made it safely to church today. This is a super busy time in our community. We've got Advent rhythms and Christmas just right around the corner. And quick confession, we actually have the tree up at our house already. Oh yeah, some mild applause, that's good. Because here's the deal, I found that sometimes I need a self-curated Advent in preparation for Advent. And so we uh, tend to set up just in early November. We happen to get it done early. So I'm happy to explain this to you more afterwards if you need, if you need it. The point is that, yes, Christmas is right around the corner. So is the preparation and feasting that we will engage in with Advent. But before we get to all of that, there's always groups meeting and dinners happening in our community. We just hosted one of our team nights, which was super fun. We've got baptisms happening next week. And quick plug here, we're hosting a learning opportunity actually a little bit later this month looking at the challenge of global poverty and how significant strides in this area have been made in the last uh, 25 to 30 years, but how there's still so much that needs to be done. And in a time of difficulty and an uncertainty in our city and in our province and in our country, these kinds of conversations are a way for us to keep our hearts and our minds open to others and ready to listen to them. And this seminar is actually going to be led by our friends George Snyman and Lynn Kotowitz, who happen to also be longtime leaders at Hands at Work, which is one of our global partners. And they are both super thoughtful, and they're going to bring their wealth of experience and advocacy to bear on that conversation. So I hope you might think of joining us for that. There's actually going to be some discussion, I'm sure, of the community that we help support in Kalende, which is in Zambia. We're going to be probably talking a little bit, at least, about the team that we're sending there next summer, which, coincidentally... I am leading that team, and I am taking our 10-year-old son. So, if you're interested in hearing a little... He's 11. He just turned 11. That's what I said. (laughs) Guys, guys, that's what I said. (laughs) Anyways... We're super excited about this opportunity for our community, and we would love if some of you would consider thinking about joining us in that, and that conversation is going to give us an opportunity to really delve into these things, so I hope you can think about it. But since the beginning at Commons, we actually have valued these kinds of forums. We've actually tried to create them in various ways to bring experts and practitioners from outside our community and help us engage a little bit more deeply with what it means to hold a robust, Christ-centered faith that's both intellectually sharp and profoundly passionate at the same time. And we want to continue to be a place where we invite each other to think and to shift and then work for the good of our local and our global community. And as always, you can register for events like this upcoming conversation by going to commons.life and clicking on the events tab. There's a bunch of options there for you. Now, Last week, we actually jumped into a new conversation that we have entitled Making Room. And it was great to have Maddie up here kicking that off for us, in part because Maddie is a wonderful leader and she's done an incredible job in her internship, which she told you a little bit about, but also because she is also a student of these texts that we love and we spend our time with. And it was fun to hear her perspective on them, to have her voice added to the different ways that we hear the story of Jesus. And as she said, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to pick up this idea of hospitality, which is this broad concept that we're trying to get at. And we're going to use the Gospel of Luke as a bit of a roadmap. And as we do so, we're going to push into what it means to practice welcome for one another, pursue justice for others, and really attempt to see each other 
Because see, Luke regularly puts Jesus in houses and at dinner tables and in domestic spaces, weaving a story of grace into elements and environments that are decidedly normal and unassuming. And where if we look a little bit closer, perhaps we start to see a model of divine encounter and transformation that is anything, or it's, yeah, it's anything but basic, actually, where we begin to imagine that the kinds of things that change the world can happen in familiar places that we recognize and we live in too. Which is what, in in fact, Maddie was asking us to look at when she worked through the story. It's actually a well-known story of Jesus and this guy named Zacchaeus where we were challenged to think about how all hospitality and all space making, how these things reveal God's initiating presence in the world. How the divine, just like Jesus does in the story, how the divine is always and persistently seeking us out. And how, when we join with this divine movement in the world, we see how true hospitality is always found and embodied when we see those we sometimes think as outsiders in some way, when we see them as part of God's story, providing the kind of welcome that allows that person to be themselves, to be their true selves, just like Zach in the story. Now, today we're actually gonna pick up another narrative and the themes of intrusion and separation generous authority and paradox. But before we get to that, I'm gonna invite you into a quick moment of reflection and prayer. Join me now. God, we are present in the quiet of this moment to you as creator, as friend, as sustaining presence of all things. And we ask that you would help us now as we take up your story again. And as we attend to ancient voices, as we do the work, too, of waking up to your nearness that is all around us, waking up to all that is normal in our lives, all that is difficult, waking up to our joy and our satisfaction, our struggle, our connections, how all of these things bring to us the image of your great goodness if we are present to it. And in our heaviness and in our confusion, maybe some pressure that we sense even now this morning, we ask, come and be light for us. Bring us to life again so that we can share that life with those around us. We pray that you'd guide us. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. Okay, so something happened last weekend and I need to tell you about it. For those of you who don't know, our production and our atmosphere and our music teams, along with our staff, we actually set everything up in this building every week. And shout out to our awesome volunteers. I think Maddie's already referenced the many teams that help create Welcome on Sunday. I personally am so honored to serve with so many of you. And basically what this sort of setup church requires is that our staff, our workday, often starts pretty early. And so every week I'm over in Kensington, super early organizing, getting things together. I'm there with a guy named Kevin Borst who leads our Commons creative team. And generally it's just us running around in our Kensington Parish sort of high-fiving in the pre-dawn darkness, sort of getting excited for community. Anyways, here's what happened. I loaded all of our gear for Inglewood into the truck and then I headed out and Kevin was there working away and volunteers started coming in and everybody's quietly going about the business of getting ready when two young men walked into our worship space there and one of them had a saxophone around his neck and he proceeded to do this and I'm going to get you guys to play the audio if you're okay.
mean, isn't that amazing? First of all, the boots alone make it for me. Like this guy, and he's sort of wavering through the song. I'm not sure how sober he was. It had been a good night, clearly, right? And we're so lucky that Bobby happened to be walking into the building and she, caught her, she had her phone out and she caught this. And for the trained ear, you will notice that is, of course, George Michael's I'm Never Gonna Dance Again, which is the quintessential dentist office tune. And it's not what you expect to hear before 8 a.m. on a Sunday. Now, the best part of this story is that this guy and his friend, when the song was over, they literally just walked out of the church. <laughs> And all of our Commons friends were there just sort of looking around, super confused, quite understandably. And I tell you that story because there might be someone here who thinks that pastoral work is super boring. And I'm hoping that this at least gives you a chance to reevaluate that position. I mean, when's the last time that happened at your job, right? But I also mention it too because our text today involves a bold and unexpected intrusion like this as well. Luke's Gospel chapter 5 tells us that one day Jesus was teaching and some Pharisees and teachers of the Jewish law, they were sitting there. They had come from all over to join him in this conversation and we're going to come back to that in a second because the story goes that they have all gathered in somebody's home and some men arrive on the outside. They're carrying their friend who's paralyzed and people are apparently quite crammed into this house apparently because these guys cannot get their friend into the house to get to Jesus. And so they do what any of us would have done. They commit an act of trespassing and vandalism and they somehow get up onto the roof of the house. And some of you may know the story. They proceed to make a hole in someone else's roof that's big enough to fit their friend and his stretcher down and they lower him to see Jesus because they're hoping that Jesus can fix their friend's condition. And this robust conversation ensues because the text says that when Jesus saw the faith of these men, he turns to the guy on the stretcher and he tells him, seemingly in an unrelated fashion, your sins are forgiven. And the leaders who are present in the house, they were not fans of this. They actually accused Jesus in the text of blaspheming, to which Jesus responds rather coyly, which is normal for him, basically saying, well, what do you think is harder? For me to forgive someone's sins or for me to restore someone's body? And then he tells the guy to get up and go home, leaving everybody in the house stunned, not unlike our friends in Kensington last weekend with a mysterious sax player appearing. (laughs) Listen, there's so much going on in this familiar story and passage. And in this series, part of our intention is to read texts like this with a lens of hospitality, Mining these stories for how Jesus makes room for other people and how people make room for Jesus, yes, but also looking for ways in which our idea of hospitality might stretch and grow. And I think there's a couple of ways that this lens brings things to life here. First, in who Jesus is hanging out with. Luke tells us that Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they had come from near and far to listen to Jesus teach. And here's the deal. The Pharisees are a dominant image and group in the Gospels where, especially in Luke and in Matthew, as readers, we are conditioned to see them often as the antagonists in the story. Or at the very least, we associate them with hypocrisy because Jesus regularly calls them out for not being consistent in the way that they live. But here's the lowdown. These groups were just one of three major philosophies or camps amongst Palestinian Jews at the time. And they had actually started as non-priests who interpreted the law of Moses in ancient time, and they felt that Jews should follow the rules super strictly. 
along with the oral traditions and interpretations that Jewish teachers had developed much later during the exilic period. And those oral traditions were seen as a kind of guardrail. Being extra strict would keep people away from the cliff of truly obeying or disobeying the law itself. Now what's interesting is that the Greek term pharisaioi is believed to be a translation of an Aramaic term, or parasea, which referred to something that's cut off or something that's separated, which is a reference probably to how some of this community's practice of separating themselves from Jews who felt they were, or they felt these Jews were too loose in following the rules. This name gets attached to them because they would separate themselves from those people, those who didn't follow the Sabbath as strictly, for example, or those who believed different things than they did. And the point is that we see Jesus sitting in a room and in a house full of these separated ones. And I love that image. Biblical scholars point out that Luke and Matthew picture these people as antagonists for various reasons, but Amy Jo Levine is one such scholar who argues that we should take some care with this antagonistic portrayal because early Christian writers in the decades after Jesus was alive, they were often opposed by other Jewish groups, and so in an effort to create some distinction between themselves, they may have exaggerated the tension that was present. And Levine points out that, as we are going to see next week, the Pharisees weren't always antagonistic. In fact, Pharisees hosted Jesus in their homes, which is our text next week. There's another example of that same thing happening in the chapter right after the one we're in. And the Pharisees actually helped Jesus out from time to time. In Luke 13, they actually warned him that Herod wanted to kill him, which means, at least in part, as Levine argues, the negative view of the Pharisees comes from the Lucan story, not from Jesus' original context necessarily. And I think that that's something that should factor into how we hear this story. Where we acknowledge that in our text today, maybe Jesus wasn't in a heated argument with his worst enemies, as the authors make it sound sometimes, but that he may have been in a rigorous conversation with those who were equally devout and pious Jews, people with just a different opinion. And that's a distinction that I need to hear sometimes because, see, we live in a culture that social theorists and commentators say is increasingly polarized. Some of you might have heard that word getting thrown around in the wake of our last federal election. And here's the deal. When specialists use a word like this, they're not talking about people having disagreements about policy. They're not talking about us having different opinions than our neighbors because honest disagreement and honesty are part of a vibrant and a just society. What they refer to is the increasing likelihood that we will choose to move to a different province, a city, a neighborhood, a school, a church that better reflects our views and our economic status or our ethnic identity. That we practice forms of social isolationism and avoidance with those that we think live differently than us. And just think about your Facebook feed or your workplace dynamics, the people that you stay clear of. Or that we won't send our children to the closest school or to our appointed school because of some issue we see with the constituents there, which is almost always rooted in socioeconomics and cultural difference. And before you assume that I'm just naming a couple of imaginary things so that I can flip them and make my point, let me be clear. These are actually all things that I've I've either done or I've had to make choices that I've struggled with in these areas in the last five years. And here's the deal. If a careful reading of this story reveals that Jesus was willing to banter and engage with those who saw faith and ethics and social norms differently than he did, 
And if he pushed so that this conversation could happen with those who liked to separate themselves from others, or who liked to push others away that they deemed didn't make the cut, if that's true, then this story takes on an air of radical hospitality, where maybe we might feel ourselves being called away from the poles in our own experience, where we realize that what it means to put Jesus at the center, to do so is to stop separating ourselves from others. And where maybe we learn to live in a world trusting that not all of the heat caused by our differences is harmful. And to do this work, I think we do well to take Priya Parker's advice of, quote, making good use of what divides us, end quote. And Parker wrote this really fun little book called The Art of Gathering, in which she doles out advice about how to run a good dinner party, how to host different kinds of events, even including corporate conflict resolution sessions. And I love how she contends that, quote, controversy of the right kind and in the hands of a good host can add both energy and life to your gatherings as well as be clarifying. And with this thought, she pushes against the widespread assertion that in social engagements, we should avoid touchy subjects, right? We should avoid the sensitive or the polarizing topics. And by suggesting that we lean into these moments at times, Parker accounts for the ways that we all negotiate meetings and conversations and walks in the dog park and encounters where we run into difference. And how sometimes we resolve these issues with avoidance or unhealthy confrontation sometimes, or dismissiveness, rooted ultimately in our belief that we hold the moral high ground. Instead of asking, and I quote Parker here again, how do we create gatherings that can hold some heat without bursting into flames? How do we cause and benefit from good controversy? End quote. And these are questions that resonate me, they resonate with me when I read this story in Luke. Because these four friends bring their buddy to Jesus and they rip open some family's roof and Jesus immediately makes this statement, your sins are forgiven and the leaders are set off. I mean, who does Jesus think he is? I think he might be overstepping his bounds here, they thought. And it seems as though Jesus was aware of the inherent controversy and that he wasn't avoiding it. Scholars feel that part of what's being addressed here in this Lucan passage is that there was a correlation often made in the ancient world where a person's well-being or their health or rather the lack of it, that must therefore correspond to their moral position. And therefore how sickness and disease and disability were seen as a kind of divine curse or punishment that must derive from something that a person did in their past. And Luke shows how Jesus undermines this with his willingness to declare the man forgiven. And his willingness to restore this man to family and to community. Now, what's interesting is that the Greek tense of this verb that Jesus uses, it's the perfect passive. And you don't have to be a Greek nerd to appreciate this. What's fun is that this means that this translates maybe a bit better as your sin has been forgiven you. And one of the curious features of the perfect tense is that that phrasing implies an ongoing result. In other words, Jesus was telling this guy who many in the room may have been assuming was a victim of his own poor choices and actions. Jesus was telling him, your mistakes and errors in the past are forgiven. Oh, and they're going to keep on being forgiven. And whether the Jewish leaders were bothered by Jesus' implication that he could forgive sin, 
that God would forgive sin outside of the proper channels of sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple, or that divine mercy deals with a person's past and their present and wait for it, maybe their future too. We can't be sure which of these is going on. The point is that Jesus holds and models a practice of hospitality for us in the face of controversy and charged conversation. And this is a practice that Priya Parker calls generous authority. And with this terminology, Parker describes how some difficult conversations require a particular brand of hospitality and hosting. One in which firmness and confidence and perhaps most crucially, selflessness aimed at helping others. How these can be guiding principles for us as we make room for the right kinds of controversy, for conversations that make use of what divides us. When you choose to advocate for a close friend or a family member who needs someone to make space for them and demand that others honor it so that that person can be heard. Maybe in your choice to be patient but firm in pressing for some cultural conversation that's pressing in your company or in the institution where you work. In labor talks, in wage conversations for those who need advocacy, maybe just in asking for clearer and more honest conversation from your superiors. Maybe in your choice to take up new advocacy, holding space for someone with a different political perspective in your office who is marginalized because of their outspoken opinions. Or advocating for someone in a different culture who's negotiating the demands of being in your neighborhood, they don't know where anything is, or for some group or family or population that needs some firm, some confident, and some selfless support. Because just like Jesus was taking on theological assumptions about health and sin and doing the much-needed advocacy in this moment, your choice to make room for someone else has the same divine potential to spark restoration that changes that person's past, their present, and their future. Now, this story ends with Jesus telling his paralyzed friend to get up and go home. The text says that immediately he stood up in front of them, this guy, and he took what he had been lying on. He went home praising God. And everyone was amazed, and they gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. And on one hand, this, this is a pretty crazy story. In addition to hearing Jesus' teaching, these people had seen someone tear through a roof and lower a person through the hole they just made. And in keeping with this being what scholars call a miracle story, they had seen someone restored to physical health and social connection in a way that they could not explain. And the terminology of this final phrase is so interesting because it might be better translated, we have seen things contrary to our expectation. Where the Greek term translated remarkable in the NIV, as I read it to you, is the word paradoxa which we derive our own similar English word from. And this word, when used with a lens of hospitality as we are using in this series, it opens up a, a whole bunch of interpretive possibilities. And I wanna give you an example that might make that clear. Recently, I was listening to a conversation involving the great Krista Tippett, whose work in our time involves interviewing and chatting with all kinds of thoughtful people about what it means to be human. And in the recording I was listening to, it was made last year, she was speaking with two young men, a guy named Derek Black and his friend Matthew Stevenson. I've put a photo up here for you to see where this conversation happened. 
Here's the deal, Derek Black, he's the guy on the far left. Derek was born into a white supremacist family in the United States, and David Duke, who is a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, was his godfather. So as a young adult attending college in Florida, Derek was actually seen as the future of this racist and exclusionary movement. He was actually making presentations, he was interviewed on television, he was an up-and-coming all-star. And while he's at school, his family history, along with his social and political views, were outed. They ended up being exposed, and quite unsurprisingly, there was a bunch of people of color and people of different cultural backgrounds who heard that he was at their school, and this made them very angry, and they got after him. Enter Matthew Stevenson, who's the man in the middle. And Matthew was one of the only Orthodox Jews on this campus at the time. And these two guys knew each other mildly and socially. And just to be clear, white supremacists frequently espouse and defend ideas of the Holocaust not happening. And they say awful things about the Jewish community. So you can imagine how interesting it was when Matthew invited Derek to start coming to his Shabbat dinners that he was hosting with some friends. And some of his friends didn't like this, and so they stopped coming to those dinners. But the dinners kept happening. And if you want the whole story, you're gonna have to check out the podcast because we can't cover it all here, because it's remarkable. The short version is that over the next two years, these guys formed a friendship. A friendship in which Matthew kept inviting Derek into a space that wasn't always comfortable for everyone, much less for them. As sometimes conversation about Derek Beliefs would surface, and this thing's made things awkward, understandably, but how over time, the combination of kindness and gentle confrontation and empathy extended by Matthew and his friends, even when, as Matthew admitted later, I frankly didn't always know if Derek's views were changing. I didn't even know where he stood. This ultimately led Derek to disavow his hateful views and outspoken advocacy for organizations that had hurt so many people. And on one hand, I think that when you listen to their story, you probably find yourself saying something similar to what the crowd does at the end of Luke's tale. We have seen and we have heard something that defies our expectations. Because if we're honest, most days it feels like most of the stories swirling around us don't end like this one, right? When maybe your life has actually been marked by attempts to make room for people who just didn't care or who lashed out at you, or who took advantage of you, or who just seemed too different. And that is true sometimes. But I think that we have a tendency to take Matthew and Derek's story, much like this story in Luke, and we trivialize and we idealize it. And we hold it out here somewhere because it's so different from our experience. Forgetting that a lens of hospitality can actually change our relationship with these kinds of stories and change everything about how we understand them. Where the power of every story is found in the commitment to sharing space. In the commitment to courageous conversation and careful disagreement using generous authority. And in the choice to advocate for others even when that's hard. Because you may not have a white supremacist friend but I'm sure you know someone that you think of as being the last person that you think would change or could change. Or maybe you're just introverted or you care a lot about other people's feelings and you can't imagine how you could make a difference and address some of the big issues that swirl around us every day. And maybe you've tried in the past 
And maybe it didn't go well because you said some things maybe more harshly than you intended or you lost some friendships and you aren't sure you really want to do that again. Whatever the case, this image of Jesus today offers us a picture of what it looks like to make room. Room for those who don't want to have anything to do with you. Room for those who are looking for someone to lend their voice. Room for those who are just different. But ultimately, room for those who, through time offered and meals shared and affection given, advocacy made, kindness extended, People who might find themselves aware of the divine in the simple workings of a friendship saying something like, someday, you know what? I've experienced something I could never have expected. And in so doing, they give witness to the paradox of hospitality. That making room for difference doesn't mean we end up more polarized from each other. And that opening ourselves to others could actually be a source of completely unexpected restoration for those who need it most. For Matthew and Derek, for you and for me, for the people that we know. So may you go into this week carrying these things, aware of the opportunities that might be present to you like Jesus to stand with those who are separate. Those who have separated themselves, those who are pushing others away. May you sense the Spirit's nearness as you practice generous authority and attempt to make good use of the controversies that seem to be everywhere. And may you find that in making room, you begin to see changes, no matter how small, changes that you would never have imagined sitting here right now. Let's pray. Loving God, What a wonderful thing it is to be drawn and caught up into story. Story that comes to us from a culture and a time that we don't know, but one that provokes us and helps us to see our own time better. I pray that you would help us. I think there's so many aspects of this story that compel us, but I think often of how hospitality might come to us in unexpected ways, but it also may come to us as intrusion as we bump into people, as we (laughs) encounter them in ways that we may not have seen coming. We pray that you would give us courage to stay with some of the people in our lives, to be firm and strong and selfless in those connections, and ultimately to embrace an imagination of what it means to make room in our lives and how we can embrace the paradox of how our differences actually hold the key to profound transformation. And that's really what we need grace for today, strength to take these things and to put you at the center of them and follow you there. We pray these things now with hope in the name of Christ. Amen.